after the slaughter of Chitter Laomer. And Abraham, meet, and Abraham meets a very interesting personage. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedor Laomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Salem means peace, and it is part of the name Jerusalem. Look at that, look at that word close there. And someday Jerusalem will have peace. In fact, we're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But when will that peace really come? Oddly enough, you may see it on some of your Christmas cards pretty soon. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, when the government is on his shoulder, then there'll be peace in the Middle East. Uh, so long as it's on the shoulders of the Democrats, Republicans, forget it. But it'll be on his shoulder someday. And he blessed him and said, this is Melchizedek speaking, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Uh, Abram didn't give tithes to just anybody, but he did to Melchizedek. And I believe, as many people as point out, this could be a theophany. That's just a fancy word for a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Because it's told us, let's look over in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. It's somewhere here in my, here we go. Hebrews 7 and verse 1. The writer of Hebrews starts in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. There's a place for godly men to go forth and combat and kill our enemies, by the way. Abraham was, after all, a friend of God. Abraham was a righteous man, yet what had he just done here? He had killed these wicked pagan kings that had come against Sodom and Gomorrah and had taken, among others, his nephew Lot captive. So Abram was, was perfectly justified in what he did. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And I never forget seeing a marquee in front of a church somewhere and had K-N-O-W Christ, K-N-O-W Peace. Then the next line was, in old Christ, in old peace. It's always stuck with me, but is it not true? He cannot have peace without the Prince of Peace. And what does it say of Melchizedek? Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. He still abides a priest to this hour, interceding, interceding for us. Indeed, he is that advocate we have with the Father, who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins whenever we sin against him. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And I make and as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, 
for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So this is an eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. And someday when we have the mind of Christ, we'll know for a fact who Melchizedek was. But I believe he was a pre-incarnate Christ. Came to comfort Abraham at a very troubled time in the world's history. This was some centuries after the flood. Men had gone back into total paganism. All the tribes around Abraham were all pagan. Abraham had fought this uh, big battle with Chedorlaomer. And the, and the kings of nations had slain the kings. And Abraham felt very much alone as though all the other people of the earth were going against him. You see, Abraham was called out to be the father of Israel, a witness to the other nations, a witness of the then of the still coming Messiah, that word that would become flesh and dwell among us, John 1, 1. That same word that spoke and in the beginning created the plant, the heavens, and the earth. For the word was with God and the word was God. And soon we'll see this commemorated in nativity scenes all around the countryside, little babe in a manger, the wise men who came to see him and the shepherds and all of that. But understand something, that's not where the Lord's story ends. Some people get kind of weepy and sentimental about the babe in the manger, and after the first of the year they forget him. Let's turn now to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is speaking to God in Exodus chapter 3. And uh, I want to start in verse 1. I want to come down to uh, verse 15. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. That should serve as a warning here to anybody who who dies in their sins, where do they ultimately wind up at? A place called the lake of fire, yet they'll never be consumed. The smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever. So even, but here we see the bush of fire was not consumed. This caught Moses' eye. You don't see something like that every day. We've all seen burning bushes, but they usually burn up, right? This one didn't. Verse 3, Exodus 3, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. There's an old saying out here in the hills that first you have to get their attention. Maybe you've heard that. Well, certainly that's what God did here. He got Moses' attention with a burning bush that did not burn up. Now that he has Moses' attention, he says unto him, verse 5, And he that being God, and he said, Draw not nigh hither, but put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Later on in the story of Moses, we would read that, that uh, Moses himself said, that I do exceedingly fear and quake in the presence of God the great man Moses. Notice something else. He says, I am. Christ never refers to himself in the past or future tense. Always I am, permanent, eternal, unchanging and undying. We may get to Revelation 13, 8, among other places where we are told he is that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before he said, let there be light, the plan was already set. He would come to a place called planet earth to die for a race of poor, lost, fallen sinners. That promise first made to our first parents in Genesis 3.15 uh, when he said that 
a Messiah would come, and that he would bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Somebody said of Christ when he came to the earth, finally came to his earthly ministry, that he came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And certainly the people of Israel were afflicted, and God was coming to comfort them, though they wouldn't always appreciate what he did for them. We've got several books of the Bible about how stubborn and, and they could be and unreasonable they could be. Verse 8, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Today you can go to Israel. I remember, never forget what Brother Boyd told us one time. He was an evangelist. He used to come to our church there at the bluff. He said he could tell where the Jews were at in Israel because everything was green and growing and lush. They had it well farmed, well cultivated. He could tell where the Arabs were at. They didn't take very good care of their stuff. All they seem, seem to be, all they seem to do is just tear it up. But uh, God would bless the Jews. And God went on to say here, flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now remember now of the, of the Amorites at any rate, God told Abraham that the cup of the Amorites' iniquity was not full. Genesis 15. And God would not judge them until the cup of their iniquity was full. It's finally full at this point. And God sends His people in to clean house. Now therefore behold... The cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have seen, also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. The, the eyes of the Lord are verse, beholding both the evil and the good. In Noah's day, God saw that the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, and ultimately sent the great flood to destroy everybody save Noah and his family. In the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, God, God smelled the savor of their sins might be where the phrase extension of the nostrils of God comes from. And God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but not before He sent His angels to get Lot and his family out of that place. And His eyes are everywhere beholding both the evil and the good, even to this good hour. Someday when we stand before Him to be judged, when we have the mind of Christ, we'll see all the things that happened that went wrong in this world. When those who are lost and undone stand before Him to be judged at the great white throne judgment, uh, their deeds will be flashed on the sky. And they'll see it the way God saw it. Nothing will be hidden from Him. What does Revelation 21 tell us? The book was open and the books were open. Plural. Somebody said God is a great bookkeeper. Look at another way, He's got a database on all of us. And nobody's going to hack that or alter it. It is immutable and unalterable. Verse 9, Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel is coming to me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, at one point there had been a Pharaoh that knew Joseph. You read this at the very beginning of Exodus. But then there came a day when there was a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he turned on the people of Israel. So they'll, you know, they'll rise up against us. We have to enslave them. Throw all their boy babies in the lake, in, in the Nile River. The first abortion decree recorded in the Bible. When Pharaoh said, throw all the boy babies in the river Nile. And Moses said unto God, 
Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, the Lord said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And this is a verse that really sticks with me. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. God has always been eternally existent and eternally unchangeable. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Many men have tried to stamp out the name of Christ. The story is told that uh, Voltaire, the French philosopher, famous or perhaps infamous French philosopher, uh, printed tracts, you know, declaring that the Bible would soon go out of use and out of, and people would soon stop reading the Bible, even in his day. One day Voltaire died, and long story short, somebody brought his house where he lived and started printing Bibles in there. Maybe you've heard this story. Now, this is a memorial unto all generations. The communists have tried to stamp it out. They failed. The Muslims have tried to stamp it out. They'll fail. The humanists and the deep state all tried to stamp out the name of Christ. They will all fail. Someday he will come victorious over all the families of the earth. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. You know what an idol really is? Sometimes we think some ugly statue people bow down to. An idol is just anything that comes between you and Christ. It could be a car, it could be your house, your job, whatever. But this is what Paul saw in the city of Athens. They were given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics, and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a center forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus was not just a strange God to him, he was the strangest of all gods, the one they didn't really know. The Epicureans, if I recall correctly, basically believed in eat, drink, and be merry. Let's have a good time. Uh, that devolved into gross hedonism over the centuries, though. Uh, the uh, Stoics were supposedly those who always believed in an austere lifestyle, keeping a stiff upper lip. You've heard that, heard that phrase. But they, both, but they both did not know Jesus as Lord, did not know Jesus as Savior. Indeed, did not know who He was. I mean, the ancient Romans had gods a dime a dozen. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. See, they're always looking for some new thing. Men today are still looking for some new thing, even though Solomon wrote, There is no new thing under the sun. But that's all people do is look for some new thing. 
for that bringeth certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And indeed, the gospel is strange to a lost and dying world. Jesus Christ has done it all for us. How does that line go? Jesus Christ paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we could not pay. No other religion out there has anything of that sort. All the rest about all this work you have to do and all these deeds you have to do and it's all works and salvation and if you're good enough you might make it. And a lot of people go into death you know, very anxious. They don't know if they're going to make it or not. You have folks who say you can't know until you get there. What if you get to the wrong place? That's not much consolation. For the Athenians, verse 21, And strangers which there were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. That's an interesting phrase. What is true if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, all you really have is superstition. Somebody supposedly said one time that superstition is the worm that crawls out of the body of faith when faith dies. And we know people that are superstitious, don't step on cracks in the sidewalk. Uh, buildings have no 13th floor, you go from 12 to 14, things like that. These are all superstitious. They're not going to get you into heaven. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. And by the way, who was Mars, by the way, while we're on the subject? All the gods of, ancient Greek, of the ancient Greeks and Romans. Mars was our god of war, known as Ares to the Greeks. So I think it's interesting, all these, these, these religious figures were meeting at the hill of the god of war to hear some new thing. For I passed by and beheld your devotions. They were devout. They were sincere. You ever somebody say that if you're sincere, you'll make it? If you're sincere, you'll go to heaven? Hey, the people that attacked Israel last weekend, they're, they're sincere. You think they're going to be in heaven? Not doing what they're doing? No. They were sincere, though. So they are devout in their... So they were devout. And Paul went on to say, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Most Bibles have that phrase, To the unknown God, in all caps. And I want to pause for a moment to read the notes that Dr. Henry Morse has about this phrase. There were other contemporary reports that have come down to us of such an altar in first century Greece. Other extra-biblical sources say the same thing. They had an altar to the unknown God, a little akin to the monument we have to the unknown soldier. Maybe you've been there to D.C. In case if we missed one, well the Greeks had the same idea. What if we missed one? There's also a good possibility it had been built to commemorate an ancient deliverance of Athens from military peril or pestilence as a result of a prayer to a greater God than any of their usual deities. And I think this may be a distinct possibility. In 490 B.C. the Persians came against Athens. Long story short, Athens won that battle. In fact, one of the soldiers in that battle supposedly ran the 26.2 miles from the Battle of Marathon to the city of Athens to tell them that they won. And then collapsed and died after running that, after running that long distance. Where you get there? Hey, hey, they run a marathon. What are they? Twenty-six point two miles. Everyone where they got that, that length from? That's where it came from. But I believe that's could very well refer to the Battle of Marathon, four ninety B.C., and they were indeed delivered. There was indeed a God in heaven. You see who delivered ancient Greece from the hands of the ancient Persians. And, God, and Paul went on to say here in verse 23, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Now we sometimes call this the Lord's house. He doesn't actually live here. He comes to meet with us, but he doesn't live in this building. He lives out there in the third heaven, out there beyond the stars, the galaxies, and everything. All that stuff he just spoke into existence. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Indeed, how did, how did God... How did God create Adam? Out of the dust of the earth, and what did God do to Adam? Breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living soul. So God put Adam, set Adam up in business. And if you're here today, it's because you were curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, Psalm 139. God had all of your specs on file, so to speak, when He called you forth. And hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That is when an empire will rise, when it will fall. How wide that empire will go, what its boundaries will constrict to in its declining phase, and finally when it falls altogether. Many empires have risen, and what, what do they all have in common? They all fell. And you can go the world over. Go down here to Central America, the Aztecs, Olmecs, Mayans, Incas, those empires all fell. Go to the old world. The empires such as the Greeks and Romans, they all fell. What will happen to the United States of America minus revival? It will fall. If God, if God allows us to stay long enough, we may very well see this country fall as we go into decline. But Paul goes on to say that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. Occasionally people may say something to the effect, I'm looking for God. You ever hear something to that effect? There have even been some movies and TV shows, albeit bad ones, where people go to other planets trying to find God. No, He's here. You don't have to go out there to find Him. The truth is not out there, it's right here in the Word of God. It's revealed to us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. That's very fascinating. Some of the Greek poets also said there's a supreme God and we live, and we live within Him. He sustains us. Christ sustains this universe. Christ holds it all together. Occasionally somebody may cynically observe, if it wasn't for me, this place would grind to a halt. No, if it wasn't for him, there wouldn't be a place. <laughs> and indeed we see at the very end of, this, of the history of this universe, when all the stars and planets are passed away with a great noise and a fervent heat, what does Christ do? Just releases the atomic bonds holding it all together. It all blows up, it's gone, it's over. And then what did John the Beloved say? I, John, saw New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, and a new heaven and a new earth wherein is no more sea. Right. No, that's, God is not a nihilist. He's not just going to blow things up. He's going to do something far better. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, you know, God created Adam, and Adam was our father. We all by way of Noah come from Adam. We ought not to think that the God is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That command is for your benefit. Let me illustrate. Stories told of a missionary in a foreign land somewhere in the tropics. Uh, walked outside his house one day, he's talking to another man. He looked up in the tree, saw his son up there climbing in the tree. And he said to his son, Son, drop down out of the tree. The boy dropped down out of the tree. And he said, Son, crawl the next 20 yards. His son crawled the next 20 yards. And then he finally said, Son, come up and run to me. The boy did everything exactly as he was told. He picked the boy up and said, Now let me show you why I did all that. 
there was a big old anaconda in that tree who was fixing to kill his son. Those commands were given for the son's benefits, not to violate his rights or ruin his fun, but to save his life. And that's what this commandment is here. All men everywhere is to repent. Again, it's not to violate your rights or ruin your fun. It's to keep you from going to an awful place called the lake of fire. Because if you, if you disobey this command, die in your sins, that's where you finally turn up at. The dead, small and great, will stand before him someday to be judged. And that's when all those books are open all those terrible things you wished you hadn't done. Because, verse 31, He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. That is, the Son will have the judgment. The Son will sit there on the great white throne. He'll have the only man-made thing in heaven, the nail prints in His hands, the only man-made thing there. And he will sit in judgment of those who rejected his free love gift. We worry so much about gift-giving at Christmas time, yet the greatest gift goes neglected by most people. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. I want to turn now to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. While you're turning there, I want to stop very briefly in Revelation 1. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 19. Christ is coming again. He came last time as the babe in the manger. As I pointed out, we'll soon see that depicted all throughout the countryside. But while you're turning to Revelation 19, I want to read the first few verses of Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to pause there for a minute. Occasionally, the Bible says the revelation of St. John the Divine. That's wrong. Christ did the revelating. John just wrote down what he saw. Which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. All the things that Christ showed him, John wrote it down. Blessed is he that readeth. That's another interesting phrase. Uh, people say we can't understand Revelation. Do you hear that? Hear nonsense like that? You can't understand Revelation. It's all symbolic or something like that. How can you be blessed by a book you can't understand? No, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand, the time of God's second coming, the time of the rapture of the tribulation of the church. Now these were written 1900 years ago. But we're now coming to the end of that age. After all, a day with the Lord says a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. So it's been two days on God's calendar since all of this. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which stand before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, not a faithful witness, the faithful witness. For there is no other name given under heaven whereby you must be saved and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from his sins in his own blood. That's pretty personal. Who else could wash you from your sins in their own blood? I couldn't do it. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. What are kindred, kinfolk, families? 
the earth was divided into families after the flood. Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of nations. Genesis 11, you have the account of how God confused the languages at Babel. And they went, nations of men went forth into different parts of the earth and became the nations of the earth. Those nations that God raises up and puts down as we saw in Acts 17. Now here in the book of Revelation, He's coming to finally personally take over this world. What was the old cry of the American Revolution? No king but Jesus. In Revelation 19, this world will finally have no king but Jesus. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You hear people debate the so-called just war theory. It's no theory with Christ. It's a fact. He's righteous, he doth judge, and he makes war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Now referring to a fiery passion he has to do that which is right. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. I can only speculate it relates to his divinity, his godhood, and leave it there. Because we don't know what the name is. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This time the Word comes in judgment on this world, in judgment on those things which are wicked. And you know why God comes in such great judgment on this world? Even at this point it is an act of mercy. What if this world were left to itself? No rapture, no second coming. Christ just leaves us to ourselves. What would we do? Except those days should be shortened. There should no flesh be saved. We'd destroy ourselves and possibly all life on the planet. All flesh could mean all animals too. Nothing but a radioactive rock ball. No, no. Christ comes in judgment. Make no mistake about it. But even His judgment is an act of mercy. And the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Ultimately the fight is the Lord's. Nobody ever heard of going to fight a battle in fine linen. And there are people from parts of the United States that are going to Israel to fight for Israel. Jewish Americans. Are they wearing fine linen over there? No, no, no. They're running their battle camouflage. But here we wear fine linen, white and clean. After all, the fight is the Lord's. Indeed, what does he say in Romans? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. There's a place for justice. God told Noah's sons right after the flood that if a man commits murder, by man's hand shall his blood be shed. So there's a place for justice, but not vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord alone. You take vengeance, you're taking something that doesn't belong to you, and you'll misuse it and hurt the wrong people. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. That is all the nations. You name them, America, Russia, Germany, China, whatever. He's going to smite the nations. These nations he called forth way back there in the, after the flood, he's going to smite them all, because they've all turned on him, and they've all given their power to the beast and the false prophet. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Even during the millennial reign of Christ, you're going to have a remnant of people that survived the tribulation period. They'll go into that millennial reign to reproduce, and what will their children still have? A sin nature. Satan will not be here to help them sin anymore. That sin nature will still be there. Thus, even in the millennium, he will have to rule with a rod of iron, for there will still be unregenerate men and women on this earth. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Pause there for a minute. If it, your Bible's like mine, you have, it, have that in all capital letters. Well, what did we have in all capital letters in Acts 17, 23? 
What did we have there in all capital letters? To the unknown God. In the time of the Greeks and Romans and in this world today, Jesus Christ is the unknown God to most people on the face of this earth. They don't know Him as Lord and Savior. Many have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And we see those churches in, in large part passing away. Uh, they're, they're dying off. But no, we, have, we serve a living Savior and He's in the world today. And this King of kings and Lord of lords is coming to redeem this world. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains. Pause for one moment. Why captains? Why not admirals? Why not generals? Why captains? Possibly it's a reference to the captains of industry, all these uh, woke corporations you hear about, persecuting their employees because they won't uh, subscribe to the woke ideology. This will finally come whenever they will be judged. And the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. God's fixing to come and slaughter a bunch of people, people who have taken the mark of the beast and have raised their fist against God. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Uh, Christ is coming to, have, to take over this world. It is said elsewhere in the Bible that he shall laugh and shall have them in derision, and he shall laugh. Brings to mind the old saying, he who laughs last, laughs best. Christ will have the last laugh on this world, this world system. And then we'll have his millennial reign. This world will finally run the way it's supposed to. Uh, Christ will restore the pre-flood conditions. And it's going to be during that time that the lion will lay down with the lamb. And they'll both eat straw together. The story is told about a man who tried to get a jump on that. He wanted to bring the millennium in now. He had him a little enclosure built on his farm, got a lion and got a lamb, put them in there together. Somebody asked him how it was going out, how it was working. He said, well, the lions are doing pretty good, but it's hard on the lambs. But when Christ rules, nothing will harm nor hurt in his holy mountain. Uh, deer season will be closed, by the way. Somebody asked me about that one time. No, Bambi will get along just fine in the millennium. Christ will take care of the animals. At the end of that time, of course, Satan's loosed for a little season. And the biggest army of ingrates ever will rise up against Christ because they'll still have a sin nature. And then after that, the new heaven and new earth comes out from God out of heaven. And we'll look at that and we'll close here. Revelation 21, 1. And I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Eventually this world as we know it now will be passed away. But we get a new one. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I want to pause there for a minute. Men have tried to build cities since the days of Cain and Abel. In fact, Cain, the first murderer, founded the first city. And what is the number one crime statistic we worry about even to this hour? The murder rate. The murder rate in Springfield has gone up in recent years. The murder rate in many other major cities has gone up. But this new Jerusalem will have no murder rate, for there will be no death there, be no sinners there. And I heard a voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, 
and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall, no more, there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Uh, we won't wonder about things that happened on this earth, the wars that were fought, the elections that were stolen, all that sort of thing, they'll pass away. We'll finally turn our back on this world once and for all. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am, he still I am, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Alpha and Omega, which is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, he would have said the A to Z today. And he gives her the fountain of the water of life freely. It's what he told the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Well, this water, if she drank it, she'd never be thirsty again. Not the stuff down there in the well, but the eternal life. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. How do you overcome sin and death? You overcome it in Christ. You don't do it in your own strength, no. You do it in Christ. So don't let somebody turn this into a stick until you've got to overcome. No, no, Christ overcame for us. When he cried out, it is finished. Or what was the Greek word, tetelestai? When he cried out, it is finished, it was done. The cross work was done. We don't have to do anything to help Jesus out. It's already done. And we're going to close with that. The, the alternative is the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers, and whoremongers and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice that's also is, present tense. And we're told that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. So examine yourself, know that you're in the faith, and then tell somebody else the good news, that Christ redeemeth sinful men. Okay, that's to be dismissed. Let's have a word of prayer. Brother Allen, dismiss us. Amen. You know, this, you're dismissed.